All right. Hey, take your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Let me uh, address a couple of different uh, groups of folks. Uh, first of all, I want to say hello to the other campuses, Hendersonville, uh, Franklin, uh, East Asheville, uh, our Arden folks. Uh, we've also got, just so you know, we've got some folks in overflow uh, here at Arden. We're doing the social distancing deal. We're trying to be, uh, you know, legalistic to some degree about it. Uh, but if, uh, why don't you, wherever you are, even if the other campuses, I'm not sure if you're in overflow or not, but if you would uh, give the overflow folks a big uh, round of applause, thank them for, uh, thank them for that. Hey, um, let me do uh, one other thing. If you are in the west part of Asheville, if that's where you live, uh, we are two weeks away. Uh, we are two weeks away from regathering at the West Asheville campus at the new location in the West Asheville Candler area. And normally there's just one week to RSVP. So for example, if you were going, uh, if you're coming here next week, you need to RSVP for next week. But because it's, we, West Asheville has not gathered in I don't know how many months, but you're gonna, you got, and you have a new location, you have two weeks. So if you are like living in that, you know, any of that part, in Inca area, any of that West Asheville area, and they're like, man, that's where I'm going, just please do this. Go ahead and, uh, you know, you can RSVP for that service. It's two weeks away, so just realize that, all right? So we're two weeks away from that. I know some of you are like, well, if we're going to overflow, what about other services? And listen, those will come pretty soon, all right? We're going to be starting to add multiple services at some point. Um, but just realize we're uh, trying to have your spiritual health as well as, as well as your physical safety. Those are, those are like really, really high, and, uh, but those will be coming sooner rather than later. As I said, you can go ahead and maybe sometime early, uh, early August, late July, you can mark it on your calendars. We're going to have a bonfire out at one of the fields, and we're burning every mask ever made in the history of mankind. So we're going we're gonna to do that. Uh, in August, all right? If you want to keep yours, uh, you're paranoid. Uh, but other than that, hey, we're in year of the Bible, all right? Year of the Bible. If you're new here, uh, one of the things we started a couple weeks ago is what's called year of the Bible. Now, we're a Bible church, and what that means is, is that we look in the Bible every single Sunday, whether you're in a small group, whether you're doing prison ministry, uh, whether you're down at the mission, whatever you are, we're a Bible church. But this year, the year of the Bible, we're trying to actually all kind of together go through it. On Sundays, we're going to be going from Genesis to Revelation for like the next 50 weeks, uh, but we've also put just a huge amount of free resources at builtmorechurch.com slash Bible, all right? And what you see there, if you hadn't gone there already, you've got reading plans everywhere from like, uh, you know, JV up to PhD stuff, all right? You can do it one time a week. You can do it every day. You get texts that'll be sent to you about what you need to do that day. Uh, there's there's uh, there's, uh, there's children's activities. There is a listening app called Dwell that, as I said before, it costs if you go to the app store, but if you go to the Biltmore deal, we've already got a partnership with them, so it'll be free. Uh, a lot of uh, resources on there, including like videos on some difficult subjects uh, in the Bible, all those kind of things. So just realize there's your plan. Our encouragement to you is to, to find a partner, all right? Find a partner, some, find somebody, it's in your family, your neighborhood, your, your class, somebody that, hey, I wanna go through that with you, all right? Just encourage them. We all need the exhortation, we all need the encouragement. So we got the, we got the plan, you get the partner, and uh, it, our guarantee is at the end of the year, if you and I will do this, this will be the best year spiritually we've ever had. And there's tons of built-in blessings from uh, you know spiritual refreshment to vitality to community uh, to a stronger faith to wisdom, all that kind of stuff. But one of the biggest things we're trying to do is show you that the Bible, all the stories, all the characters, they're telling one story. All the characters are really about one story. 
And unfortunately, what's happened is down through the years, people have said, you know what, I revere this book, but sometimes all the characters, all the names, all the different authors are like, man, I just get stuck in that. And I told you the story before, there's an agnostic Jew that several years ago wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. All right, this was a Jew that lived in Manhattan. He was actually a Jew by birth, but he was an agnostic. He said, he's a, here, I'm like, don't write me an email on this. His quote was, I'm officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. All right, that's not me, that's him. All right, so what he was saying was, he wasn't a practicing Jew. But he said, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible through every day. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to obey literally every single rule of the Bible as literally as possible. So he reads it. He writes down every single directive that the Bible has, big or small, which includes like the big, big things like the Ten Commandments and also like the lesser Old Testament laws on diet and dress and all that. And so his book is about all these small laws and how he's like, that's what the Bible's about. And so, for example, in Leviticus, it actually says that men should not trim the edges of their beard. So this guy didn't shave for like, I don't know how long. He looked like, he looked like the soggy bottom boys. I mean, he just had this massive beard trying to, obey, trying to obey that part of the Bible. He stopped wearing clothes made of mixed fibers. All right, he, uh, this is probably the best one. He tries to fling, he tries to fling tiny little pebbles at people without them noticing in order to quote, to, st to stone adulterers, all right? So that was his idea, how do I do that? So obviously massive problems with approaching the Bible that way. Not only did Jesus fulfill like those dietary and dress laws and all that thing, he fulfilled all those in the gospel but when you look at it, the Bible is like a library, all right? It's a library with different authors, different literary devices, all that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And if you're a Jesus follower, uh, you, you, you read the Bible, you and I want to take the Bible seriously, first and foremost, because Jesus took the Bible real seriously. He memorized it. He quoted it. He brought it out when he was tempted. He taught from it. He argued about the best way to actually interpret it, all of those if we're a Jesus follower, we want the same relationship with the Bible that Jesus had with the Bible. And by the way, if you're not a Jesus follower, this is the best-selling book of all time. Man, join in the journey with us. What do you have to lose? And our prayer is that God would uh, speak to you. But today, we are looking at is arguably uh, one of the most important passages in the Bible. And it is the story of the fall of the human race. And we can all state something, no matter where you are and your spiritual worldview, nobody would argue with the fact that some way, just looking out the window, the world is broken. The world doesn't work right. Nobody looks out the window, nobody looks at the headlines, not just in 2020, nobody looks out and goes, you know what, that is exactly the way everything is supposed to work. And if you believe that, I'll just change your mind by just saying, you know what, ask the parole officer. Ask the social worker, ask the foster parent, ask the oncologist. If you don't know any of them, just ask a pastor because those people, they see the messed up part of society every day. They see the sexual predator online trying to prey on kids. They see the teenagers who get so discouraged they're cutting their forearms. They see the broken marriages. They see the meth addicts. They see the fact that chemo is not working. They see those different things every single day. And so the temptation for a text like this is to only look at the macro questions, and those are important. The macro questions are, man, why is the world broken, all right? How did that get that way? Why is it like that? 
All those questions, those are, those are good questions. But we also want to ask the micro questions, and those are, what is my personal response? What is my personal reflection? I've got to acknowledge it's not just there's a problem out there in society. There's a problem right here in the depth of my heart. Why do I continue to go back to the same trough of a destructive habit day after day, year after year, all the time? Why do I, why do, I do that? Why do I say those words? Why do I make those dumb decisions? Why do I do those things? And so what we're looking at today is there is a disease that has corrupted all of us that is mentioned in Genesis 3 and broken out. And the way I'm going to outline it today is pretty simple. Is this, what are the two most dangerous lies that we tend to believe? There are two lies that are uttered. And whether you knew they were uttered to you or not, whether you believe them or not, whether you've gone whole hog onto them or not, there's two lies that are the most dangerous lies that lead to a ton of other stuff. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read the first six verses. We're going to talk about the first lie. And then we'll read the next six or seven verses, and we'll talk about the second one, okay? So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty. And again, one of the things, uh, crafty is highlighted. That's not highlighted in your Bible. That's highlighted in, in the words up here. I want to draw your attention that we're going to come back to that word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Time out for a second, before we even get to verse two. God had actually said almost the opposite of what he's being accused of here. God had actually said, man, eat of any tree in the garden, all the thousands, eat of any of those, except one. There had to be thousands of all these yes trees and one no tree. They are in paradise. They're walking around naked as a jaybird. They've got purpose in life. Go and rule over the earth. Make babies and eat all you want and you won't put on any weight. You don't have to be keto. None of that stuff. That is, what, that is where they're being tempted from. And so uh, verse 2 says this. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She's doing pretty good right now. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. We don't really know whether that's, she's adding to God. We don't have any record of God saying, hey, don't even touch it. But he says, uh, neither shall you touch it uh, lest you die. And so the bait is dropped she is circling the hook. And verse four says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now we'll come back to this. That is the direct contradiction. God said, all this stuff is yours. Don't eat from that one tree or you will surely die. And the lie is you will not surely die. Verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And by the way, sometimes, leave that verse up here. Sometimes guys ignorantly joke about, hey, Eve should have never done that. 
Eve should have never done that. Eve's the one that brought us all this pain. Men, verse six is a terrible verse for us because we don't know what Adam was doing. He should have been out killing and grilling or doing something awesome out there. And instead the text says he's right there. He's a passive male watching his family disintegrate. He had been told this. He was supposed to protect his family. He's right there. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So lie number one, God is not good. Lie number one that gets whispered all the time is God is not good. God's ways are not best. God's plans are not the best plans. Remember, right before chapter three starts, God had blessed them with an abundance of everything, of food, intimacy, no relational hangups, be fruitful and multiply. And then there were no chapter divisions in the original text, so it goes from what we call the end of chapter two to the beginning of chapter three, and it simply says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals. He was crafty, it means deceitful, it means sneaky. Here's the picture you gotta get in your mind. This is like the fisherman who like puts the hook down in the water, covers the hook with bait, and he's like dropping it right in front of the trout, trying to get the trout to think to himself, man, that looks awesome, that's amazing. Lucky me, this is great. It's like the hunter. It's like when I put out a bunch of deer corn, all right? I put up a bunch of deer corn, not because I love the deer, not because I even have the best interest of the deer in my heart. I want to conquer the deer. I want the deer to be on my wall. And so I put the corn out there, hoping that the deer will come in, thinking, what a gracious, gracious person Bruce is. What an amazingly benevolent, generous landlord he is. He put out corn for us. You put on camouflage, why? You take all the stink off of you so that they can't smell you for one reason. You want to take the animal down. And so he's crafty, he is sneaky, and he starts saying, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any? So Satan is saying, has God said no to a bunch of this stuff? Isn't he being a bit unfair? Don't you, do you actually think God has your best interests at heart? And he was crafty because he said, because God had said, eat freely of all the trees in the garden. And again, how many yes trees could that have been? We don't know. And what the serpent wants her to focus on is the one no amongst all of the yeses. And that's the way a lot of times people just see God anyway. It's kind of a cosmic killjoy, even looking at the Ten Commandments. They look at the Ten Commandments as restrictive, and it's like, God doesn't want me to have any fun. And what you got to do is understand that the Ten Commandments are protection. And so when he says no to some things, he is saying yes to a thousand things. When he says do not covet, he's not just saying don't covet, he's also saying enjoy all this stuff that you got morally and legally, enjoy all that stuff. Be blessed by all that stuff. And then he says you will not surely die. In other words, God's not telling you the truth. What God said really won't happen. And the way we hear it today is God's not a judgmental God. I mean, God's just a God of love, all right? He's busy with bigger stuff. And sort of the cherry on top in verse five, 
when he says, you know the reason God's doing this, girl? The reason that God is actually doesn't want you to take that fruit is because he knows, he knows if you take it, you're going to be like him. And he's selfish. And he wants to be God, and he wants to be God alone. And he's not trying to protect you. He's trying to keep you down. He doesn't want you to flourish. He doesn't want you to be happy at all. Remember, how many times has she seen this same tree? Who knows? She's seen it day after day. But now she's seeing it for the first time through the big lie of God is not good. And loved one, you got to get this. you got to understand this. Every temptation you and I face, every single one, it has different looks on it, has different faces on it. Every temptation that we will face, these are the core ingredients of the lies. God doesn't know best. God doesn't love you. You know better than God. There's no real consequences. That command is antiquated and, and old and, and, and the, the new stuff is what you need to go after. His way won't make you happy. I know better, or here's, here's the great one, just follow your heart. That's the, that's the dumbest advice. Please don't give anybody that advice. Just follow your heart. The Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can even understand it? Well, you know, I got this plan, and God's like, I wrote the plan down. I wrote it down for you. Well, I got this plan, and I think this is going to work best. He's like, I've already told you what is working best. And so... Uh, Again, what this is, is this is the fisherman popping it across the water, trying to get the attention of the fish, all right? This is me out back trying to put out a, this, a, a, a rabbit's dying, a rabbit's dying, trying to get the coyote to think again. It's, it's golden corral day at the Frank household, and I'm doing this dying rabbit, dying rabbit, and then Mr. Coyote comes up, and it's not his best day. That's the point. And what do we say? That's why we say things like... Uh, I know God says that sex is designed for marriage, but man, my way's better. My way's better. I mean, I think I know how it's designed. I know God says I can't serve both God and money, but that's why three that's why Christians only just give away to anybody, any charity, any nonprofit. The average Christian gives away less than three percent, less than what they actually did during the Great, Great Depression. And what are we saying? I can't trust him. I can't trust him. That's not the best plan. Others of us, you know what? I know God says to forgive that person, but that person did me wrong. And, you know, holding on to this sure feels good. I know I'm getting bitter. I know it's affected my other relationships. Man, I want that guy to pay for what he did. I know God wants me to get plugged into a local church. He's been telling that to me for three years. And I love Jesus. I just don't like God's people, which the Bible actually says you can't love one without the other. It's like, it's like uh, the church is his bride, by the way. So if you're like, hey, Bruce, I like you, and this would actually never happen. The reverse would probably happen. But if it's like, hey, Bruce, you know what? I love you. I love you. I don't like your bride. Well, I'm like, yeah, you don't have a choice, all right? We are one. We're together. You can't say you love me and not her. In the same way, you can't say, well, I love God. I just don't want to get plugged into community. My plan's better. I like isolation. I'm a me person. I don't like groups. I got hurt by the church. Well, here's the one that's like, you know what? Uh, I know God says whatever God has put together, do not let man separate at all. But you know what? I know God says marriage is a covenant, but you know what? My wife has gone cray-cray, and I am just not taking it anymore. Well, you know what? My husband is just not respectable, and he's lazy, and he will never get out of the lazy chair at all, and so I'm out of here. I got somebody at work that's paying me attention, and, of course, that makes me happy, and God wants me to be happy, and so if God wants me to be happy, I'm going to break what he said to actually make me happy. How smart is that? Not at all. And uh, 
we say, you know what, uh, God's just holding out on me. God's holding out on me. And so we get out of there. And let me just ask, hey, parents, are you a bad parent if you've got, let's just say you've got a two-story house and you've got a little scooter, whatever, he's walking, crawling, whatever, mobile. And look, are you a bad parent if you put one of those baby gates so that scooter can't go up the stairs and then like jump off? No, you're a good parent if you do that. You're a good parent. Are you a bad parent? If you put those little plastic dealy things into the electrical outlets, are you a bad parent if you do that? Are you trying to hold something back from little Junior? You're not at all. Junior might go, I like putting metal things in the electrical socket, but you're like, that's bad for you. That will hurt you. And in the same way, God is a good dad. God is a, a good parent. And in some of the things that God says when he says, you know what? Use food like this. Use sex like this. Spend money like this. God's plan is not, hey, you get saved because hell is hot, but I'm going to make you miserable the rest of your days. And listen, we're not a health and wealth prosperity church, so I'm not going to sit up here and blow wind up your skirt by going, oh, come to Jesus and everything will be awesome. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says to some degree, if you become a Christ follower, things in some degree might actually get a little bit more difficult for you. But the Bible also says, listen, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you can have life and have it to the full. So God wants you to have the joy. God wants you to have the abundance, even in the midst of going through maybe a hellacious time right now. And so God is not holding out on you. God is not giving you plan C. And when we bite into that fruit, understand there are consequences. There are consequences. Uh, verse 16 and 19, we won't go through today, but those are the consequences. And in a nutshell, this is called the doctrine of original sin which means, you know, in a macro way, every disease, every disaster, every death, you kind of trace it back to there. And sometimes when we talk about Adam and Eve and people are like, well, good gracious, man. When I see Adam in heaven, I'm gonna like smack him in the head. Well, the idea is God knows you would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing had I been in his shoes. So that's what the Bible says. Adam's kind of like our representative. But when this happened, you had futility come into the world. Everything's hard now. Everything is, it's like going to Ikea every single day of the week. Everything is difficult to put together. You've got to work hard, and it's like, man, I'm not getting anything done. Uh, pain. Bible uses the term childbirth to signify pain. Ladies, mad respect. If you're a mom and you had a baby, man, mad respect. It is true, man. If men have babies, they'd be like one child only for every family. That's like, I've seen two born and I've, I'm, that was painful for me, much less my wife, all right? So pain is part of what happened here. Relational conflict. Relational conflict. Relational conflict. He uses husbands and wives as the primary deal in about verse 16 and 17. It says, you know what? You know what? Husbands and wives, there'll be this built-in friction for you guys. It's, in a nutshell, it says, husbands, your tendency, your temptation is going to be to neglect your wife. Wives, your temptation, your bent is going to be to just try to change your husband. Be this way. and You're not the way you were when we were dating. One neglects. One just always is trying to bring back, and it's like it causes the tension. And it's not just husbands and wives. The next chapter, brother kills another brother. And then it says spiritual death. And uh, they died spiritually immediately and they physically died eventually. Uh, original sin, G.K. Chesterton said, original sin is the only doctrine that is empirically verifiable. Everybody dies. The death rate in the human race is still one to one. 
And before we jump on to lie number two, another little macro deal just so you understand as well is that this doctrine of original sin, it also means that every one of us are born with a posture of kind of clenched hands toward Almighty God, assuming our way is better, our desires are more important. And just so you know, again, as a parent, some of you are like brand new parents and you think you have a little angel. <laughs> one of the things we joke about is, is uh, the baby gets older, the wings get shorter, okay? Because what you're going to see is uh, the baby is not an angel. The baby is, the child is not perfect. My good friend Joby Martin, he, I think he's the first one I heard him coin it. He said, kids, kids come out of the womb like the seagulls in that scene from Nemo going, mine, 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 mine. That's what they come out like. I mean, you don't have to, I mean, have you ever had your 18-month-old come up to you and go, mother and father, uh, you've had a rough day. I can see that. And so you probably need some you time. So I'm just going to go into my bedroom, and I'll take care of myself, and you just go do you, and you go take a bath. And all these that never, never, ever, 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 ever happens, ever happens, ever, ever happens. We did not have to send the Frank boys to sin camp. We did not have to send them to a selfishness seminar. It came by them very naturally, just like your kids and just like you. And you're like, well, this is uh, why I came to church, man. This is the good news. I came to church. Told me, I, tell me I was a rotten, black-hearted, wretched sinner who has his fist clenched before God. Now, the turning point of the Bible you could say everything, this is where, because this is where normally in a book that's written like this, creator makes creature. Creature rebels against creator. Creator squashes creature. End of story. And that's not what happened. And what is the turning point of the Bible? Here's the way it goes. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, again, they were naked before. It's kind of interesting to say naked in church, right? They were naked before, all right? They were naked before and without shame. Now they're still naked, but they're like, cover up. I mean, it's like, never mind, okay. Then <laughs> the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Which, by the way, I'll come back to it. This is the first religion. I have guilt, I have shame, I gotta cover it somehow, so let me do something to cover my shame. Great news, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. I mean, how smart is that? How smart is that? Hey, I got an idea. Let's hide from God in the garden that God made. That's an awesome, that's a bright idea, okay? from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now we talk about it in church all the time. When God asks a question, Jesus does this a ton in the New Testament. When he's asking a question, he's not asking it for his own information. He's asking the question so you would pause and think, like in this case, where am I? Where am I? What have I done? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid and because I was naked, I hid myself. A few more verses, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you uh, not to eat? Okay, real quickly, let's do a survey. Who thinks, raise your hand if you think God already knew that they had eaten the fruit. Raise your hand if you think God already knew that. 
100%. 100%. Of course he did, all right? The man said, the woman, okay? This is so bad for men, okay? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. We'll come back to that. Ladies, don't, don't elbow don't elbow the guy because your time's coming, okay? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Last two verses. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I, and here it is, this is the, this is, this is the, you could actually say that verse 15, at least the back part of verse 15, it is the first prophecy in the Bible and the rest of the Bible flows from this prophecy slash promise. Here's what it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Line number one is, God's not good. I'm not sure I can trust him. Line number two comes in, first, first one is, you know what, first is kind of preventative. It's like, you know what, God is good, I can trust him. Oops, I messed up again. And line number two is this, God is not gracious. God is not gracious. So what do they do? They get, they get found out, they play hide and seek with God. Let me go parents again. If you have small kids, there's gonna be this deal where they play hide and seek. It gets progressively more difficult as they get older. They also don't want to play when they get older, but early on, it's gold. Because like your little five-year-old's like, hey, let's play hide and seek, daddy. All right. And they run into the master bedroom and they hide under the covers, their butt sticking out. And you, you go in there and you can obviously see them and you try not to laugh. And you're like, hey, Connor, Connor, are you in here? And then half the time, if you ask that kind of question, they're like, no, I'm not in here. It's like, that's what they're doing. They're trying to hide. He's like, are you in here? No, I'm not in here at all. And so uh, how do we hide? How do I hide? How do you hide? First way we hide, and we've talked about it before, we just got to go ahead and field dress this thing, put it to bed, and let's, let's just be crystal clear. But one of the ways that we hide from God is religion. You see verse 8, what's the first thing they do? They were ashamed. They had guilt. They've been found out. They're trying to hide from the presence of a holy God. And what's the first thing they do? we got to cover ourselves up. Let's do something. Let's get loincloths. Let's put some leaves together. And let's try to hide ourselves. Fig leaves are the first religion that you see in the Bible. Man-made religion is always, I will make up for my guilt, my shame, by doing something. That something runs the gamut. Religious observances, I'll get sprinkled, I'll get baptized, I'll be good, I'll go to church, I'll go to synagogue, I'll go to mosque, I'll do whatever. I gotta do something so I can like accumulate these chips because when I accumulate these chips at that point in time, I can shove all my chips in front of God and go, you owe me, God, look what I have, look what I, look what I do, look what I do. This is like the guy that has multiple affairs on his wife and then she finds out and then he brings flowers home and says, here, you ought to be satisfied now. Man. 
Religion is always outside in. Religion is always out. I will do something for God so you will then do something for me. The gospel is always inside out. I will give you a new heart. I'll give you new desires. I'll give you new righteousness. As the old preachers would say, you know what? Religion is all about do. The gospel is all about done. You know what? I've done this for you. One of the verses I've told you to memorize, top 10 verse to memorize, 1 John 4, 10, it says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means a payment that's satisfied. It means, you know what? Jesus has made the payment that satisfied a holy God over your sin. And if you're in Christ, you are righteous, you are holy, you are redeemed, you are blameless before God. Not because of your performance, but because of Jesus' performance on the cross. And I remember this uh, years ago, uh, I've told you before, my, uh, when my mom got remarried after my dad had passed, uh, she married a guy that came from a tradition of big time works. I'm not going to name it, I'm just saying, came from a tradition, it's like, it's all about what you do. And so all of a sudden he had four stepsons and we were all relatively new believers. We had a lot more zeal than we did have knowledge, all right? So we were not the easiest to live with, believe me on this. But we were like learning so much. And I remember one time he's like, what you're talking about? We'd share the gospel. What you're talking about is so easy. Where's your motivation to do help people? Where's your motivation to serve people? Where's your motivation to give? Where's your motivation even to read that Bible you're talking about so much? And this is what a lot of us think as well. Got to get this down. The reason that we read our Bible, the reason we attack and repent of our sin, the reason that we try to share our resources with our communities, the reason that we want to tell the gospel, the reason that we do those things is not so that God will love us, it's because God has already loved us. And if you don't get that, then you're still confused about religion, and every time you fail, you will run from God. That's what religion does. When you're religious, one of two things will happen. You will either get prideful because you're doing good and you look down at other people. It's like, man, I'm doing pretty good. And therefore you look down at other people. You're like, they're not as good as me and they don't pull their weight and they don't work hard and they don't X, Y, and Z. Or if you are messing up and you fail and you have some catastrophic blowout or even just a habitual sin you can't get over, then you will go into the opposite and that is not pride but despair. Despair, it's like, I can't believe I did it again. And you will run into the forest and hide behind a tree and you will make your own loincloth saying, you know what, I gotta cover it up. I feel such shame. I would say top five hearing stories about people when the gospel delivers them from shame is one of the top stories that I get to hear. I had an abortion or I was sleeping around or I had this and I had this. You know what? And then I heard the gospel and I realized that Jesus paid for that sin. And when they understand that, man, they love the Bible. They love serving. That's the motivation. But here's a second one we do. We hide, we hide behind religion and we shift the blame. All right, dudes, guys, tell me that's not true. What did he say? What did I, what did I say? Where are you? God's talking to Adam. Did you notice that? God goes to Adam first. Adam, you were passive. You weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing. Where are you? And what did he say? He blamed not just the woman, he blamed God. The woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. My wife acted crazy. She shouldn't have ever even gone in that part of the garden. I told her a couple years ago, don't go to that part of the garden. 
She went. She went. And remember, you're the one that gave the woman to me. And then what's the wife do? I thought initially she just blamed the serpent. The serpent. But then I realized she's also blaming God because the text clearly earlier says it was the serpent whom God had made. Eve definitely knew that. So it's like, God, it was the snake and you. And nothing's changed. We just shift the blame. They did me wrong. My parents weren't good examples for me. You gave me these needs. You gave me these desires. You gave me these feelings. I married the wrong one. This person isn't right. And when you and I fail, you need to be able to say, I'm not going to hide behind religion. I'm not going to blame other people. Verse 15 is your freedom verse. Someone who would come and do what Adam couldn't do. This is the first promise that the rest of the book is about. It's a picture of the gospel when the offspring of Eve would crush the enemy. Now, 45 seconds, let me give you a quick theology lesson. The New Testament commentary on this, a lot of it is found in the book of Romans, particularly chapter 5 and chapter 8. And what they do, the New Testament writer, the apostle Paul, he talks about Jesus being the second Adam. In other words, what the first Adam messed up, the second Adam, Jesus, fixed up. And so while there are some parallels, there's mainly a contrast between, you know what? First Adam, Genesis 3, he messed it up, just like we would have. The second Adam, the one that's prophesied right here, he fixes it up. The first Adam, he is tempted and he disobeys. The second Adam, Jesus, Matthew 4, he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he obeys perfectly. The first Adam, he eats of a forbidden tree. Jesus, the second Adam, he climbs up on the tree and takes the curse for you and I. First Adam, he brings death, he brings misery. Second Adam, he brings life and he brings joy to all who will embrace him through repentance and faith. So let's land the plane and say it this. God is still looking for people today. He's still looking for the prodigal Christian who's like, you know what, I've got a better plan. I can't trust you in this area. And he's still calling out. You know, he still comes looking for you. Where are you? Where are you, Bruce? Where are you, Lori? Where are you, Sam? Where are you, Stuart? Where are you, at? Where are you? That's a question that he's trying to ask you to reflect on and say, is there an area that I don't trust him in? Is there an area that I'm like, I know God's plan. I just don't trust God's plan. And so uh, our question is, are we going to hide? If we hide, we hide from joy, restored fellowship. And our deal is how do we, how do we respond? Uh, I told you before, Luther, the Protestant reformer, he says the Christian life is basically boiled down to one phrase, and that is the Christian life is all about i got to begin again. i got to begin again. And what he's talking about is as you grow, as a, even as a Christian, as you grow, what God does is begin to, as he's molding you and making you and growing you, he starts to carve out those things that don't look like you. So when you're like, I feel very convicted about stuff. As a matter of fact, I feel more convicted than I was a brand new Christian. Why is that? God's changed me so much. It's because as you grow, there's other things that don't look anything like Jesus. He's still going to convict you of. Maybe he goes from action to attitude. And so what you and I have to do is, okay, every day, if I'm going to grow, it's the same deal. It's like, you know what, conviction, 
and then humility, and then repentance, and then conviction, humility, and then repentance. And repentance is the best way we've talked about it. Repentance instead of hiding. Repentance is a change of thought that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of my action. So we could do a hundred different things from financial to marital to everything else, but a change of, of mind. Hey, I don't, God doesn't want me to treat my spouse that way. That's a change of mind. And then all of a sudden it seeps down a little bit more. It's like, man, I got, there's some issues that I've been doing that for five years. But then that change of action means I so don't want to be over here. I'm going to do the necessary action to change that. So here's the way to easier to think about it. You're going the wrong direction on the highway. Your GPS is like, wrong way, abort the mission, rerouting whatever yours says. What you're supposed to do is like, I got to get the next exit off. And so when you exit, what that is, is that's a change of mind. You know what? I'm going the wrong way. I better get off of this highway. And then by God's grace, you then go over the overpass. That's a change of heart. That's realizing, you know what? I can go on the overpass of God's grace. But then I got to get on the highway going the other direction. That's when it's a change of my action. So here it is. If you're a Christ follower, what area is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus? And don't say you don't have one. Don't say you don't have one. You might not want to deal with it, but don't say you don't have one. Just pure statistics say we've all got some. So number one, what is not surrender to the lordship of Jesus that you need to go back and go, God, I don't understand it, but your plan is good. Your ways are best and your word tells me the truth. And so I've got to align myself with that. Secondly, it would be it's like maybe you walked in here, not with a swagger, but you walked in here with a limp and you're like, man, I just, I am bust. I'm a bust. I'm busted up. What am I going to do? Well, your choice is either going to be hiding or getting restored. I would strongly encourage you. Don't hide. Just get restored. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes for a second. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed at all the campuses as well. Just right now in your heart of hearts, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christ follower and God's convicted you, all that conviction means is he pointed out something. It's like, hey, let's deal with this. Maybe today's the first time he's pointed it out. Maybe this is something that his voice is getting a little more faint because he's pointed it out many times before. And brother, please don't let that voice get where you can't even hear it anymore. Just say, by the grace of God, I'm changing my mind, my heart, and then by God's grace, I'm going to change my action, whatever that is. When I start off small, just simple, showing gratitude to your family, cutting off a relationship that always brings you down, starting to help people that can never help you back. If you're not a Christ follower, your first act of worship like this, your first act of getting off the over, getting off the highway and going a different direction is called repentance and faith in Jesus. When you say, you know what, what Jesus did on the cross somehow counted for me. And I'm, I don't want to be my own boss. I want Jesus to be my boss. I want him to be the one that calls the shots. He's got to save you first and say, Jesus, when you said it is finished, somehow that was about my sin. Would you save me as I sit in church today? Just tell them right there. For others of us, it's just the fact that uh, there's some unconfessed sin. And you're not sure. You're like, I don't know what God's going to say. I don't know what God's going to say. I'm a prodigal. And if you look in the prodigal story, the prodigal story, he didn't throw a fit. He threw a party when his son came home. 
So God, I want to I want to repent of, and you name it, and since that restoration. So Father, I want to pray for all of, uh, all of our folks here, online folks, other campuses, listening Sunday morning, listening later on during the week. God, help us to immediately see the lie that you are not good. You are a good God. You say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us to taste and see you are good. You're good all the time. God, and that you're gracious, that we run to you in repentance. We have a Father that is waiting there with open arms. So, God, I pray the days ahead as these tumultuous times continue and things begin to continue to change, God, help us to be a gracious people who say we have a good God and a gracious God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.